I am thrilled with today's guest. Marcus Samuelson is, uh, he's a brand. He's more than a celebrity chef. He's, uh, he's a lifestyle guru. He is a, uh, he's built quite an empire. I think it's about 17 restaurants. His new restaurant is Havamar. Mar. We're going to talk about that. Of course, Red Rooster, so many others. Uh, he's written a half a dozen books, uh, multiple TV shows, Inner Chef, Urban Cuisine, Top Chef Masters, Chopped, on and on and on. Um, he is a legend. I'm thrilled to talk to him today. How you doing, man? I'm happy to be here, Donnie. It's, it's, it's just, we just... Thinking about the interview today, I'm so excited because you're always my guy on Morning Joe. You're always oh, my guy, you. bringing it back to, to you always talk from actually what's happening in New York City or in the political world and breaks it down for us layman. It's like, oh yeah, that's actually how that's going to impact 18 months later. So, you know, policies can be very hard for some sometimes to understand how it's going to impact in real life. And you always do a great job of actually explaining. Oh, that's very kind of you. That's very kind of you. Speaking of New York, how are you feeling about New York these days? You know, obviously you you lived through, we all lived through COVID, but you as a restaurateur, I think you you gave out two or 300,000 meals uh, to first responders. So you obviously did more in your part. But how are you feeling about the city uh, post-pandemic? Well, I, I love New York. So uh, I would always be committed to New York City. If I'm gone for two, three days, I travel a lot with work. I miss the city, man. I just miss it. I just, I always say yeah. an F you on the train. Uh, it's always, always feels better. makes me feels wake good. up. Feels good. Feels uh, good. Right. You know, and, and sometimes that one when, when on my son, with my son, and he's like, what is that? I'm like, it's just a New Yorker. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, we've been here. I remember post 9-11. It was funky. It was weird for a minute. It was very difficult for us with the city been attacked. The difference was the whole world was on New York side. The whole world came to support, whether it was through tourism, whether it was to go to our restaurants. And we really became New York City to the world during that horrendous, horrendous, um, challenging time in New York City. And that's the only time I've actually felt, wow, uh, should I move back? Should I go back to Sweden? What am I doing here? And I just felt that time, I'm not giving up on this. This is not, I, I came here with a big vision. I came here to add value. I love this city. I'm not, I'm not leaving now. They're not going to win. COVID was different. It happened globally. We all had good days. We all had horrible days. Uh, we had to pivot and change. And it was also days when we collectively were tired of pivoting and changing. So this kind of funk, COVID funk, and the challenge of that, and the death, and all the different ways to deal with it, we're going still through this in New York City, and particularly in black and brown communities, it's going to sit longer. You know, when people said, oh, everybody left, everybody did not leave the city. So that's just like false right, right there. Um, so I am always optimistic. There is no city like New York City, and we are fighters, and we're going to get through that. We're getting through it right now. I can tell you from a customer point of view, customers supported restaurants more than ever. They bought swag. They supported that local restaurant. And one of the reasons when you look at a restaurant that's open today, New Yorkers can actually say, we did that. We kept that place alive. I'm not talking about the big fancy restaurant, uh, including myself being very lucky and fortunate, but I'm talking about the coffee shop, the bar down the street, the stuff that actually makes New York City. It's still standing, a lot of it. And uh, we can actually say, like, we did that. We kept that in business. You have a pitch. You know, not everybody knows your backstory. It's phenomenal. And in, 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 uh, I didn't know all of it until I was doing my research for this interview. And 
Do you ever pinch yourself? You you kind of look at what you've built and from where you came from a, a hut the size of two restaurant tables in Ethiopia. Just tell our audience a little bit about your, your beginning and, and your journey to all of a sudden at age 24 being the first kind of uh, black chef to make international renown as the 24-year-old at Aquavit. Long journey from Ethiopia. Just if you can spend a few minutes talking about your beginnings because they're stunning. They really are. Um. I don't know about your story, but I don't want to take luck out of any of that, right? Because I go back to Ethiopia with my family, and we go back to that hut. And I both fear the hut, and it also gives me strength, right? That we came out of it. I don't know what my sister and my mom and I did, and I didn't do anything of it because I was just a tiny little baby. But my mom navigated us out of that hut. Not only did she do that, you know, she got us into a hospital that was, you know, partly Swedish operated. And, you know, one of the nurses there, when my mother passed away in her mid-20s, and, you know, through tuberculosis, me and my sister survived. And that nurse, again, it's like luck and goodness of others, right? Like she, this random nurse took us in. She broke the law to save us, right? She took us in. She had three kids of her own and just said, we don't have a lot. But these kids have nothing. So I'm taking let, Let's go back. You skipped over one thing. Your mother walking 75 miles yes. with you and your sister to get you to a city yes. so you, you could be yes. near a hospital. 75 miles walking mm-hmm. while she had tuberculosis. Yeah. So that's basically three the, the three marathons, basically, right? Three New York marathons right there. And I sometimes I go back and I see them. Um, 20 something young mother with two kids. I'm like, that could have been my mom. That was us back in the day. So, so when someone said you made it or someone said I'm self-made, I don't believe in any of that. You know what I mean? Uh, I was extremely lucky and fortunate. I also was in the hand of someone that said, I'm going to save you both my mom, but also the nurse. And she eventually gave us up for adoption. And then I went from Casa Hunse guy to Marcus Samuelson. I went from one of the warmest countries in the world to one of the coldest countries right. in the world. But I was right. loved, Donnie. I was loved. I was tucked in from from that uh, hut, from the village, from being in the hospital, from being taken to that nurse, all the way to Sweden. I've always been loved and supported. And you got into cooking with your grandmother, Helga, right? Is that kind of how it all started? It definitely. And the craziest thing is my son now, Zion, he's six and a half years old. And that was the age when we started to cook, me and Helga, right? When Helga took truly like, I have two older sisters and they, they were just normal sisters. And they were like kind of sort of into cooking, but not a lot like like me. I was like obsessed with this. And Helga saw that and she's like, well, you know, I'm going to get more, more, you know, she's also pro, probably pro child labor, right? Because <laughs> she was like, I'm going to put this kid to work. And once she went to Helga's house, there was always something going on, right? There was like chicken stock in the back, fresh bread coming out of the oven. We were always like berries that need to be pickled. You were always active and it was, you know, I don't remember watching TV ever with my grandmother. You know, I do remember the radio being on in the in the living room. My grandfather was kind of like shouting at the radio. <laughs> and, and me and my grandmother just like hanging out in the kitchen. Uh, I, I learned stuff. And, and, and I, again, I was loved in that kitchen.
I'm always blown away at the various forms of creativity that I don't understand. I can understand how to create a 30-second TV commercial. I can understand how to create a news show. I can even understand how to create a, a sitcom TV. I did that. But the thought of taking from a blank piece of paper and creating a restaurant, mm. creating it is so out there to me. Such a, like, let's start with Red Rooster, which is kind of like the, the foundation of your empire. Give me the beginning. Give, give me how that, the seeds, no pun intended, of, of how that happens. There, there was, it didn't exist and now it exists. Kind of take me to the, yep. the, the germ of the idea and to the development. Well, it's, a, it's, it's again, as a creative person, when something traumatic happens, like 9-11, like the pandemic, as a creative, my response is to really reflect and go back out and say, hey, this matters to me. And it was post-9-11 again, I was searching. I was in New York. I was cooking for the 1% of the 1%. Our restaurant, Aquavit, was very successful. But I felt like this wasn't enough. This is not the only thing I signed up for. I signed up for food and great quality, but not just being in Midtown. It was it just wouldn't keep me going in terms of my creative mm -hmm. juices. And I was talking to my mom a lot. And she's like, well, you grew up with people working in a bank. You didn't grow up with bankers. Like, why is their taste so appealing to you? She was really challenging me on creating something that was more commonly, more democratic than more people can touch. And she said, you know, you should really do something that more people can come to. And at that point, I lived basically by the time we want to send her on, you know, basically on 58th and, and 9th. And I decided to move to Harlem. I said, I, I just need to be inspired. I need to see something different. Uh, and once I got to Harlem, I, I got to know my neighbors. I also started to see the city operates very different. You're only, what, a five-minute, 10-minute cab ride away from, from Upper West Side. And then the life there was so different. And it was the warmth of the life. It was also the fact that being a Black person, being in Harlem, I wanted to search more for my identity that wasn't Ethiopian identity. It was just around African-American culture. Mm -hmm. And being a student of, of culture, I thought it would be very arrogant for me to move to Harlem and then just open a restaurant a year later. It's like, I, don't, I, I need to know more. So I studied, mm -hmm. we studied for seven years, you know, before we, I moved to Harlem and then opened Red Rooster. And for me, it was very clear. My restaurant before was all about food and service. Once I came to Harlem, I realized I need to tell a bigger story. We need to tell a bigger story, which was really about the art, incredible artists in Harlem music and art music and art where food and hospitality have to kind of fit into that cycle and that took me and my partners it really took us seven years to develop that and uh harlem is giving us so much and i can never repay it but uh, one thing i do know is that i'm not going to move out of harlem i'm going to stay here and i know it has impact when i'm walking in my neighborhood and people come up to me and like you know people like dapper dan were in the in the community, of the community. And as an entrepreneur, I want to stay here and make sure that entrepreneurship, ingenuity in Harlem continues to grow. What blew me away, my first experience at Red Rooster, beyond obviously the spectacular food and the chicken, and this is, this really hit me. And obviously New York is a melting pot. And obviously New York is a fully integrated city. It was the first time I was in a, I don't even say a restaurant, a place that didn't feel mostly black and then a smattering of whites, or mostly white and a smattering of blacks. It was like 
This is what integration looks like. This is like, it, 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 like I noticed it even as much, if not more than the food. And I had never yeah. sat in a restaurant where I wasn't counting, but I would say, oh, this is not black. This is not white. This is, not, this is really, wow. And that I, it was duly noted. It really, really struck me. And I realized that how still, as far as we've come, how still segregated in so many ways our lives are. And it blew me away. Well, thank you for saying that because it's also an honest take of where we are, right? But things should come of something, but be for everyone, right? Yeah. When 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 Motown started, right, the music was of a culture, mm-hmm. but it was for everyone, right? Uh, any great art, whether you look at Prince or or Michael Jackson or Bruce Springsteen, whatever you know, iconic. I'm talking like major major stuff that changed kind of the the world in a way it was of a culture like i was in sweden feeling new jersey through bruce, bruce springsteen right yeah so when it happened through white culture it's right away people understand it because it is the majority and has the megaphone of the united states but when it happens through black culture it's like is it underground what is it it takes a longer minute for people to get there right but i just felt in the early in the 2000s through internet through this younger demographics coming up. We are there now where you can tell a bespoke story. It should be delicious, but it's for everyone, Donnie. It really, it really, really, really struck me. And what, if you were going to say, because Red Rooster has become an iconic kind of an institution. Why, why Red Rooster? And, and I, you, you've touched on it a little bit, but now years later, and it's been around for a while now, and, and you've expanded. You, you, you've obviously opened up other versions of it around the around. What I think you've got one in the Bahamas and yep. one in Miami. And uh, what? Why Red Roost? What? What happened there that made it so special? Um, you, I think there is a balance between a humble enough of learning, arrogant enough of creating. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's a balance mm-hmm. there on both shoulder. Like, I. I I knew that I could not just open it. I had to listen to my great friends at the Apollo, my great friends in the parks in, in, in Harlem, the great people at the Studio Museum, and, the, and places like libraries in New York City Library, but also Schomburg in Harlem, right? So we have mm-hmm. these institutions that you walk on. And, you know, my Angelo used to be my neighbor and like, like iconic people, right? So when they say something, just be quiet and listen because you're going to learn a ton if you're lucky, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that's the immigrant in me that's like, I'm grateful to be here. I, I don't know. I don't have all of this stuff figured out and let me listen. But then the arrogance of me, again, being an immigrant, like, I can do this because, you know, I'm a chef. I can do this. And that confidence, that level of I'm going to enter the world, right? Like, I had no clue when I came to this country. I, I, I saved up $300. I came to the United States. I knew I could I, I could add value. How? I hadn't to figure out. So it's that combination. But then also, like, running a kitchen, being a chef, is like being a tribe leader. You got to you gotta drive because we have over, you know, 200 people working with us. So you got you, you to gotta drive that tribe to excellence and belief and uh, – I think the diversity piece is big. What you felt, thousands of people felt. So that that's not a small thing. That is the thing, right? And I think holding up that mirror that I always was inspired by New York City subway. Like we all, don't matter where you're going on Upper East Side or on Tribeca or on the West Side, we're in that subway. And the only way this works is by we all respecting each other, 
right? Mm-hmm. And whatever you make, whatever you come from, doesn't matter. You can put it all in your pocket. Once you ride that subway, we all got to work it out. We all know when that elderly lady goes in that you get up on your seat and, and, mm-hmm. and, and you, you give up your seat. Like The moment that rule is broken, New York City don't work anymore. So I knew like New Yorkers understood sort of, we're walking up this mountain together, but if you're not coming with me, this is not going to be ha- This is not happening. I so it's the I knew that New Yorkers saw what I was doing. It wasn't about being perfect, but they knew if we don't support this, we're actually, you know, we got to give the guys, we got to give this team a shot, and they gave us a shot. It's a weird question, and you're obviously you you're kind of a political guy. You mentioned Morning Joe that you watch it, and you watch it enough to kind of know the, the dumb things I do on there. But so I'm curious. Does politics touch the culinary world at all? We're coming off a at least a, a very good week for the good guys. Uh, obviously, it was it was a real gut test of who you are as a culture. The, you know, beyond anything, we, we talk about the politicians, we talk about the, the issues, we talk about abortion, we talk about January sixth, but it really was a test on who we are as a, and we and there are more people who believe in the right things than the decent things and fairness and honesty and truth than don't mm-hmm. and that was very refreshing how does that does that what's going on in the political world get into the kitchen at all i know that it seems kind of a weird offbeat no, question no i mean um i just finished a incredible piece now the luxury to work with audible and Chef Jonathan Waxman from Barbudo, mm-hmm. we narrowed down the, the eight restaurants that uh, changed America. The eight restaurants we felt hands down changed America. Oh, I'd love to hear that. And I say that because it's called Seat at the Table, because in that politics runs through everything. We talked to the first integrated restaurant in America from New Orleans, Miss Leah Chase and Duke Chase. We talk about, you know, we, we go and meet and sit with. Wolfgang at Spago, you know, how this Austrian guy can become like the, kind of like the Michael Jordan of restaurants. Sure. And I say that because politics is in everything, laws. And, and, and the fact that this dialogue, if you and I would just have lunch, we couldn't have that without someone like Miss Leah Chase that broke the law of integration. She had to break the law in order to create that you, Donnie and I can have lunch, right? Yeah. That took someone with risk. So, you know, that's kind of why people love America, right? Like they, this is the place where people broke laws and took risks to start a business or start something. And so politics are part of that, right? One, you know, now with Hobb and Marr, one of the commitments, you know, I decided we, we decided to focus on female leadership in hospitality. So why is it that we don't have enough leadership and women-owned restaurants that are absolutely amazing? So for me, it was like, okay, the whole leadership team is going to be women of color. And secondly, um, you know, getting into fine dining is expensive. Owning a farm, sending sort of like to the farmer's market and all that's expensive. There's a very, very high threshold to get into. So we're focusing on supporting black and BIPOC farms, winemakers, right? Because obviously people have worked on the farm, but owning the farm uh, is a different story when it comes to, to uh, you know, a lot of black and brown people in this in, in this country. So... Politics is everything. When I think about a chef, two chefs that I would say I bring up three chefs probably besides Miss Leah Chase. Uh, Alice Waters, when she kind of connected the farmer to mm-hmm. the restaurant in Chef Panini in the 70s. I would say uh, Jose Andres, the way he set up World Central Kitchen 
mm-hmm. and really made sure that everyone should get have access to food. And he's going to, he's essentially FEMA on the private side, right? Like he's really, but working even more efficiently very often than FEMA. And then someone like Tom Calicchio. Tom is in there. You cannot ask any political questions. Tom knows his stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have chefs asking the right questions for very often for the little guy, because otherwise um, our questions never going to be dealt with. You know, we, we're not used to work with lobbyists and expensive law firms. Uh, so we need leaders like that. And, and those three has been, and there's many more, but those three has been game changing. Speaking of politics, obviously one of your career highlights about 10 years ago, you cooked for in the Obama White House. Uh, I believe yes. you made, you, for a state dinner, I think it was the Indian Prime Minister, and I, you made short ribs, right? Is that, do I have yeah. that right? Talk yeah. to me about yeah. that whole about whole experience and, and being asked and then kind of the whole process. Yeah, I mean, it was it was funny and, and rad as a kid says today. Like, uh, you know, if you go back before that, I cooked a lot for the Swedish king and, 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 and the royal family in Sweden. That's very different, but it gave me sort of reps on understanding privacy, being quiet, don't talk on social media or anything like that when mm-hmm, you deal mm-hmm. with sort of a certain level of, of clientele. Sure. So, so we knew that. And then I think also, you know, I've cooked for Clinton, I cooked for George Bush. And, and and so I knew kind of, okay, this is what this means, right. kind of from, from a privacy standpoint. But I've never actually cooked at the White House before. So I felt that was very, very special. And of course, it was special to cook the first dinner for Michelle and Barack Obama. That was like massive to me. Um, it started with getting a call from my friend Sam, and uh, he was working for them at the time. And he said, hey, we're about, we're asking about 30, 40 chefs if they can come up with a suggestion. Do you want to put your, you know, your name in the hat. And I was like, sure, Jeff. Uh, and then, okay, what would you do? And so I, this is one of those times where you kind of like, I knew whatever suggestion I'm putting is either going to get swiped away right away, or it will be something that they kind of got to look at. Because I was one of the first chefs, I, I started reading about a prime minister Singh, and he was vegetarian. So I'm like, it was that. And then I started to look, read on state dinners, the fact that up until that point, they were all French. And I'm like, wait, yeah. wait a minute. If, if they, you have a Korean or if you have yeah, a Brazilian right. prime minister, why would that be French? Yeah. And it just shows you how little steps food has done in terms of penetrating the pop culture. And I said, listen, we're going to do something. We're going to show up America here, but also showing off India. So we're going to make sure that truly when you break bread, that you know these politicians are both proud of the bread basket and passing the food around. And I literally had images in my head that were – you know, like someone like Donald Rumsfeld would pass over the breadbasket to his <laughs> Indian counterpart, even if he wasn't at the White House anymore. But just like it was soft, you know, I literally put politicians' heads on it, you know, thinking about through it like that. Right. So I did a chapati, like an Indian breadbasket with American cornbread. Do you know, I did chickpeas with collard greens. Like it was like really being in these two different places at yeah. the same time. Plus, of course, the first lady at the time, Michelle Obama, just started her um, garden initiative. So I'm like, this should feel like this dinner should come out of this garden, right? Yeah. This is really, we're planting a seed for this dialogue. So I threw all that on a menu and it's like, there's five people left. I'm like, all right, do you want to change? No, this is my menu. 
And then like in October, uh, I got a request. Can you do a tasting? We did a tasting. And then like, you know, that was an interesting week, just like this week, right? On Sunday that week, I won the biggest cooking competition on television, Top Chef Master. Sure, sure. That day. The next day, I couldn't even celebrate with my team. I just won the won the prize, headed out to LAX, got on a plane, took the red eye to Washington DC, woke up the next day, just cooked in the in the White House. <laughs> yeah, that's so nice. What did it feel like in there, cooking in the White House kitchen? It was. Is it just, is it just a kitchen? Is it a kitchen or? It is pretty simple because you know none of the presidents want to spend money on it because they're going to get you know, beat sure, up of course. by the other guy. Yeah. So that you, you kind of have to sneak in things like in the sense of like, oh, there's a new stove here. Oh, well, well we didn't pay for the new stove. Right, 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 right. <laughs> That's funny. But, That's interesting. But it was also great. We're cooking at the White House and, you know, like, you know, people come through and they want to taste stuff and, and it's just, it's still people, right? It still smells great. People, yeah. it's a good vibe. The kids came through, you know, the dog was running. It's just good vibe. Yeah. You know it's, I mean? a, like, it's a home. It's a home. Yeah, right, isn't it? And exactly. what was your, what was your interaction with the president? You know, as always him, you know, Barack and Michelle, they're just incredible people. So there was 400 people. We moved, we moved, the dinner had to be moved out to the lawn because there were so many people wanting to come, right? So you got moved out to the lawn, it's about 400 people, and they tell you stuff like, Marcus, you have 43 minutes, not 44, to execute four dishes, and then <laughs> it's like Jennifer Hudson's going to sing after that or something like that, right? Right, so right, like, right. 43, Got it, <laughs> right? So it's orchestrated like this, and he's saying hi. They're saying hi to 400 of the guests standing there online, as you know, just shaking hands. Of course. By the time dinner is done, we get somebody of his security people say, hey, the president of the first lady wants to say thank you to the kitchen. I said, don't worry about it. They're so tired. They're so busy. Don't worry about yeah. it. We're back here. They ran up, knew how to figure out to just bring one photographer with them, but not too many, right? Because they, did, they were tired. Yeah. They stood in the kitchen with my team, dishwasher, cooks, for 30 minutes afterwards. Now it's like 11, wow. 30, 12 o'clock. Yeah. And, they, and you can tell, like, he knew. She knew what this would mean, not to them, but for us. Yeah. And they took another 25 pictures with us. Yeah. And I just felt sorry for the guy. There was a guy walking around holding up a wall. So it didn't have to be like a dirty kitchen wall. There was a little right. guy walking up, holding up the nice wall. And I'm like, that guy went to college and he probably had a master. And how did he end up holding the wall? But it was all good. <laughs> but it was a great time. One of the great thrills I had when he was uh, Senator Obama, I had a small, small dinner in my Manhattan apartment, maybe 15, 20 people, and he was there. And, and it was uh, what an honor. It was one of my great honors. Talk to me about Havimar, the new place. Yeah. You know, it's, I got to go back to the pandemic. And it was one of those things that Jose and the World Center Kitchen said, if you have their open the restaurant, we know how to serve people. I said, well, our community is going to need it. And that became my new routine, putting on my clothes, putting on gloves, mask, serving. And Don, guests are guests. You know, when we were having, saying you're serving 300 people a day, 500 people a day, 800 people a day, 1,200 people a day, the dialogue was just like as you would come with, with your crew. And someone would say, hey, I like the chicken better yesterday. How can we get paired today? We want bananas for dessert or something like that. It was the same back and forth. And it kept me sane. The days were shorter. Maybe we just handed out food four hours a day, showered, and then I, I started to say, 
if we ever get a chance to do it again, I don't even know at that point, March, April, May, 2020, does restaurant matters where we'll ever come back? You know, I said, if we ever get a shot to do it again, I got to do it differently. What can I do as a leader to set the table for the next generation? And we got a bunch of calls. I wasn't interested. And then we got this one call in Chelsea. And I've always loved art. And being part of the Chelsea art community, I started to read about Andy and Sean Michel and all, you know, like all of this right. incredible stuff. And I and just said, like, hey, I'm going to open something that is inspired by my Ethiopian background, my Swedish background. And I started just like doodling down ideas and sent it over to an architect, Sebalon. He was in Montreal. He's like, this is great. It's so contradicting. And then him and I started to go back and forth. And, you know, we presented our idea. It wasn't even a concept. Um, you know, started Lehigh, uh, you know, 26 and 11. They loved it. And I said, well, there's, we got to figure out the DNA, what's broken. And I said, that's when leadership, female leadership, uh, being part of that really came about. So I knew I wanted to be about seafood. I knew I wanted to be around sustainability. So vegetable-forward, seafood-forward restaurant with smaller animal protein dishes, like three ounces instead of eight ounces. Mm -hmm. We're the only country in the world that thinks getting a 10-ounce, 12-ounce steak right. is a good idea 9.30 right. at night. Right. Right. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, let, let, rather than hit people over the head with that, just show them, like bring them to it in a delicious, funky, cool way, the way we know how to do that. So that's really when Hav and Mark came out also – in terms of the name, I wanted something that was one of one. You know, it's not a concept. Like hav means ocean in Swedish, and mar means honey in, in Amharic in Ethiopia, right? So by putting these two odd places and have Americans say it, right, it's going to be these two places are now going to be connected. Uh, so it's a lot of thought that went behind it, and I couldn't be prouder, more exciting than today that we're actually going to open that's great, man. Hey, Marcus, what a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I've been a big fan for years. I'm glad, glad we got a chance to 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 chat. The new restaurant is Havimar, of course, his string of others. You know them. I really appreciate it, man. You stay well. Donna, can I just say like this? We got we can't leave without, because I always wanted to tell you this. First of all, keep bringing it. I love Thank the you. fact when you bring like style into the morning show and like <laughs> they don't even know how to deal with it. You right, might have right. like the new, you might wear a necklace. You might wear something on your wrist or arm or right. something like that. They're all like, no, it's okay. He just came from an event. He's supporting <laughs> women's you. parties. It's not a big deal. <laughs> and they're like, hmm. And then you see six months later, Joe yeah. is wearing it. Ah, Joe is wearing it. He's wearing it. it. <laughs> Tell him that. It. Okay. You, made, you made my day. You stay well, my friend, all right? Thank you, buddy. I appreciate you. Hope you enjoyed our interview with Marcus Samuelson. What an interesting, fascinating guy. Uh, remember to tune in to our Brands of the Week, which breaks on Tuesday. And rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anyplace else. We love the fact that you listen. We love your comments. We'll see you next week on On Brand. <laughs>